If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, we'll continue our study there. It's a lengthy reading, but I, I would like us to pay, pay attention to a few things in it. Um, one, I want you to listen for stolen glory. This is kind of sometimes um, passages, texts like this, you, you feel like you have heard it, like maybe you grew up, I did, I grew up hearing this story in Sunday school, um, and that's great, I mean, you should know these things from Sunday school, praise the Lord, um, but sometimes we miss the main point, what's going on in the text, so listen for stolen glory, and then listen for what God does about it. The grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God stands forever. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not the thoughts of... Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom who is in the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. 
but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known it to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, we need you. We need you to show us the goodness of your gospel, but also the rebellion of our own hearts. Or it would be all too easy to point the finger at this prideful king and not see three pointing back at ourselves. Show us the ways, even today, Lord, that we have been prideful. And show us our need for you. Show us the glory of your gospel, the true and good king who came for us. Lord, apart from your spirit being at work, none of this will be accomplished. So we pray. Lord, that you would do a work that we can't do. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. As we begin a new year, I wonder about our priorities. 
This isn't a sermon about New Year's resolutions. December has come to a close. New Year has come. I've thought about what are my priorities. What am I to to be about? What am I to pursue this new year? What am I to focus on? We're a confessional church. If you don't know what that is, we have a set of documents that summarize the theology of our church. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is is a great help for us if we're trying to frame what is our new year about. And I'll just ask you, what is the chief end of man? All together now. What is the chief end of man? The chief end. Yes. That, that'll do. Yeah. The, the glory of God. There's no higher or better aim. As we begin a new year and restart in our study of Daniel, we would be right to see the story of Daniel as this unfolding story of glory. God's people are exiles. They're not in their homeland. They have been dragged off, in fact. And Daniel is one of those who's been dragged away, and this is what his life now looks like in Babylon. What what would that look like for you and me? Could you imagine being a refugee like this? Babylon. I mean, the roots of Babylon go way back. We can read about them in Scripture. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? It's not good. It's a whole city that is bent on defying the true and living God. By their power and with their own ingenuity, these people try to reach heaven and be like God. It's the sin that goes all the way back to the garden. We saw this in the power and pride of on display in Nebuchadnezzar. God had handed over his people, Israel, to Nebuchadnezzar. He was punishing them for their pride. So he goes in and wipes them out. And then Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh man, I've got, I've got it going on. And he raises himself up. And in chapter 4, we see that he is brought very low. It's almost like the rest of Scripture is true and God raises up kings and He lowers them if He wants to. The text says at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is at the end of chapter 4, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. He was utterly humbled. And at the end of His being humbled, He looked to heaven and said, Thank you, Lord. You are the true and living God. You are it, not me. So chapter 4, which we left off over a month ago, six weeks ago, that was how it ended. Nebuchadnezzar saying, Oh man, I'm a wreck. And you're the true and living God. And then the contrast that I think we're meant to capture today in chapter 5 is, does it always work like that? And the answer of today's text is, no, it doesn't always work like that. 
Nebuchadnezzar came to, to learn that his glory, his pride, was absolutely nothing compared with the power and glory and might of the true and living God. The question hanging over chapter 5 is, will his grandson or great-grandson or wherever he is in that line, will he do the same thing? We're told in Scripture from beginning to end that all of life, the entire world, is about the glory of God. In the garden, we saw God's glory on display, and there was a fall from that glory. Isaiah chapter 6, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are screaming the glory of God and that the skies proclaim His handiwork. Day after day, pouring out speech, night after night, displaying knowledge. All the world is about God's glory. And yet in our text, we we see this individual stealing glory. Taking what belongs to God and saying, this is mine. I will use these things that God has made for my own glory. That's what's going on in the text. And here's the reality. We all rob God of His glory. This is what sin does. Before we get into the weeds of the text, let's remember the the setting. Years and years have gone by since we last saw Daniel. He was a young man then, he is an old man now. There's a new ruler on the throne, Belshazzar. He's relatively young at the time. And here's another thing we need to know historically, is that the Persian army is at his back door. And he knows it. So here's a king. He knows an army is sitting in his backyard. And, and he's throwing a party. Think of that. He's raising himself up. Before we give him too hard a time though. Consider your own life. If you are a Christian like me. Then we call God our father. We say we are adopted by Him. Not because we're so good or we've done something good to earn that or deserve that, but because He has taken us in by grace. And what I thought about this week is how often by my words, my thoughts, my actions, my relationships, am I robbing God of His glory? Not as some pagan king over there, Not as this politician that you may frame in your mind that you hate so much. Not like that. Me, someone who would call him God, my father. I think it's a question worthy of your time, your energy, your thought. What is the glory of God? God's glory is uh, literally in scripture hundreds of times. Defining it is difficult, yet it's why we were created. It it has to do with weight, weightiness, heaviness, awe, and wonder. Fully describe, in your own mind, the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. And the context in which you have seen it, and the the beauty of that moment. Just try to go all the way down with that image in your mind. A sunset, I don't know, a a mountain vista. If you could fully appreciate 
in your mind and recognize the weight and beauty of that moment, you would only be scratching the bare edges of the surface of the glory of God. It's weighty. It matters. Edward says, the glory of God is, quote, the beauty of His perfection. The beauty of His perfection. Seeing God for who He is demands all of us. It says, worship. We're made for this kind of awe and wonder. The text before us today is stealing glory from God that belongs to Him alone. And it should teach us lessons. We have lessons to learn along the way. We'll look at it in two parts. First, the problem of pride and idolatry. And second, the power of God and sovereignty. The, the first, the, the problem of pride and idolatry. Again, we're meant to contrast Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So he, he looked a lot like this. He, he would, Nebuchadnezzar was, he was a raw guy. If he, you got on his nerves, he would throw you... Um, into a lit oven. But time has passed. Nebuchadnezzar was eventually humbled. Daniel has lived a long life. It's likely that Belshazzar is, again, somewhere down the line from Nebuchadnezzar. You would think he would have learned some lessons from his grandfather or great-grandfather. Wouldn't you? He knew all the realities that had gone down. He knew what his ancestor had done. German philosopher Hegel says this. It's a really good quote. The only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. That's exactly what's going on with chapter 5. Nothing has been learned from history. We know from history that the the city is under siege. The Medes and the Persian army sit just out back. And into that we read verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. He thinks he's utterly safe. He thinks he's utterly protected. He thinks his walls are unbreachable. If you want to talk about it, I had to look up how they did it. Uh, because these walls are uh, insane. How big they are, how wide they are, how tall they are. Uh, we could talk about how they take him out. Um, but he's throwing a party and he's utterly ignoring Psalm 2. That the God who sits in heaven's laughs at people like this. People who shake their fists in the, in the face of God. Isaiah 47. God says, I am and there is no one besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you and you shall not know from where it comes. Time and time and time again, we're told in Scripture that God raises up power and, and lowers power. Listen, we're, we're coming in, and this, I didn't even make notes about this, but we're coming into an election year. Pay attention. 
Yes, go vote. But pay attention to who establishes power, who raises power up, and who casts them down. The, the heart of leaders is like water in the hands of God. He moves it wherever he wants. Not only does Belshazzar throw a feast for thousands of his lords, but he goes a step further. He demands that these um, temple utensils that were captured from Jerusalem, from God's temple. And that, that should, you should have like a light bulb go off and say, that's not good. Don't mess around with these things. He has those brought out. He said, it's not enough for us to throw a party. I also want to mock the God of Israel. Bring out their stuff and let's drink from their cups. And then they go a step further. It says they drank wine and praised, not the God of that temple in Jerusalem, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Belshazzar made a fatal error in that he thought he was safe. He was safe behind his walls. He could do what he wants and nobody could tell him any different. Not only did he want glory for himself, he wanted to steal the glory of Almighty God by using what didn't belong to him. Romans 1 says that this is the pathway to idolatry for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. The immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the God who makes all this metal, we're going to worship the metal itself. Belshazzar is making a statement. God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you're out. Our gods are in. We're the ones in power. We're in control. Our walls are big enough. We're going to be just fine. John Stott summarizes it this way. If pride is the doorway to insanity, then humility would be the doorway to sanity. He's insane. His pride is leading him to insanity. 24 hours from this moment in the text, he's going to be dead and his kingdom ruined. And a new leader is going to take over. 24 hours. What are the walls that we hide behind that we think keep us safe from enemies and more importantly, safe from God? We all have them. What are those walls that that we think we have put up that mm, you're really not going to know me? I'm really not going to be known by God or by others, not truly. We all have these walls. Look, it's one thing to to read this text and say this is just about Belshazzar, a pagan king. No, it's actually a really, these are really good lessons for us. We also, in our pride, think behind our walls we're safe. As we begin 2024, I think it would be a great thing for us to consider the ways that we're spiritually blind, full of pride. Again, not as pagan kings. We, we come to, you're here at church this morning for, with some interest in, in the gospel, an interest in the Lord, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here. 
And we're not pagan kings in this room. We're God's people. But we still hide behind these thick walls. We think they're going to save us. God doesn't immediately intervene. Always, not every time, but he does here. Verse 5, immediately, and imagine how trippy this would be. The king looks up and sees a hand writing on his plaster wall these words. I love the description of his reaction. It's almost cartoonish. His color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs give way. His knees knocked. He calls for the enchanters. Calls for all his buddies. I mean, that's almost this comic response. Like John Knox in in some kind of um, one of his movies. I mean, he's just undone body and soul and mind. He's utterly wrecked. I think you would be too, and I would be as well. God comes in, listen, to, to redecorate the walls of his life. Why the response of so much fear? Well, beyond the obvious, not even a fool would fail to recognize that this is ominous. This is not good. Suddenly, you're having a party. You're drinking out of um, these uh, utensils that you shouldn't be drinking out of. And suddenly, a hand appears writing on the wall. That's a scary thing. The presence of God is there. And that's a shock to the system. God is coming in judgment and Belshazzar knows it. I think there's a lesson here too. I think our culture, me included, we want and desire a really comfortable experience when we encounter God. But that is often in Scripture not the case. That is not the case here. It is incredible to hear the good news of the gospel that Christ has come, the very Son of God has come into the world to live for us, to to take punishment, to take the wrath of God in our place, and that He didn't stay dead, but He he was raised again in glory. That is incredible to hear. Since the fall, drawing near to God was a fearful thing. There was awe and wonder pillar of fire and smoke, earthquake, hearing terrible news from your physician. This new year is going to have encounters in which, based on circumstances, you're going to have moments where this um, distance, these walls that we create between us and God, feel, it feels like they go away. And that's not always comfortable. And it's not always soft and pillowy and nice. Sometimes it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Not all encounters with God are sweet songs sung by church family. Sometimes they're scary. What should the response be? Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When you are utterly undone and wrecked by God, is that a bad thing? I would argue no. That's not a bad thing. 
seeing God's greatness and his glory should pull us towards him and towards the cross of Christ. Rather, Belshazzar doubles down in arrogance and he says, let me use my ingenuity and my resources to figure this out. Gather everybody together and I'm going to make somebody really rich if they can explain to me what's going on here. And listen, this is exactly where pride leads. Pride says this, there's not a problem too big that I can't fix. I can fix all the problems. I can throw enough money at it to fix it. I can dump enough resources into this situation and make it go away. That's the pride of Belshazzar and that's the pride that's in you and me. In this, let us be pointed to Jesus. Because you don't have enough wealth. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough in you to get you out of the situations that you will be in in your life. You don't have enough. This guy was the king of Babylon, for crying out loud. The, the largest empire ruling at least half the known world. He didn't have enough resources. He was going to die in 24 hours. You think you have more than he did? No, you don't have enough. This, right here, this point, should drive us to Christ, saying, I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I need Him. So from the problem of pride, tons of problems in there, we turn to the power and sovereignty of God. We're introduced in this next section to the queen. It's like, who is going to come in and speak some sanity into the situation? The queen comes in and she says, hey, I remember this guy. His name was Daniel. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, really liked him. And he, he understood so much. He, he could, when nobody else knew anything, he knew. That really st stood out to me. He, here's the thing. The way you live your life, the way you comport yourself matters. Daniel had caught the attention of people. They knew when there was a problem that his wisdom could be trusted. They knew that God was with him. She even makes reference to the, the spirit of the gods is with him. There, there's this reference in Genesis 41 where Pharaoh makes this same statement about Joseph. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? It's remarkable. People from the outside. These are pagan people. Right? These are not worshipers of Yahweh. These are not worshipers of the true and living God. Looking at his life saying... There's something different about him. You need to call this guy. You need to look him up and give him a call right now. This week I thought a lot about this section and questions came to mind that were hard. Are we living, are we living lives that are notable to the people around us? I think it's a great question. In our New Testament lesson, we heard this. Paul wrote, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is that just a bunch of words? Paul is saying, I am living my life framed around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am living it intentionally into him. 
for him, because of him. I get the sense that Daniel's life was not one of ease and comfort, but he was always straining for what was ahead of him. He was filled with the Spirit of God. I think Daniel's life was marked by holiness. His life had an impact. The the Bible never leaves it there, though. When Isaiah says this, a very familiar text, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is talking about the coming Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Time and time again, Daniel gives us these snapshots of someone great, someone who has lots of gifts, but those gifts only serve to point us ahead to the greater one, the greater Daniel, Jesus. You think Daniel's wise? Come meet Jesus. So Daniel's brought in before Belshazzar, and we hear this, this long speech about Daniel, and notice the things that Belshazzar focuses on when, when he is introducing himself. You are that Daniel. You are the exile from Judah. This is not your home. Um, having just profaned the God of Judah, he's now um, giving credit Uh, to Daniel's abilities uh, to the gods. Again, Belshazzar creates distance. I've heard that you can do these things. His whole approach is man-centered. His whole approach has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with Daniel and his power. And he's wanting to emphasize, he's wanting to to make make sure Daniel knows, dude, you're an outsider. You're our captive. Our gods are what matters. You don't do this thing for me. Notice Daniel's response to the king's offer for money. I love it. Let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards for another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I love that. I love that he says no. Spiritual gifts, your spiritual gifts that God has given you cannot be bought. And you can't buy someone else's gift. It doesn't work that way. I wish I had some of your gifts. But I can't buy and pay for the gifts that God has given you. That's what we're being told right here. Daniel's like, no. Another lesson is this. God's servants can't be bought. It's the role of servants to do what the master says, not what men say. Yeah. Daniel says, I'll do it. I'm going to tell you what it says, but I'm not going to do it because I'm for sale. I wonder as we look around the landscape of the American church, has Christianity become a commodity that's bought and sold for a price? It's not the ultimate point here, but it's, it's on display and we should pay attention. There's another lesson that we should pay attention to before we move on. Belshazzar is so impressed with himself that he is stealing glory for himself and he's utterly blind to the disaster that is waiting for him. Even when he's giving his speech to Daniel, he's, he's utterly oblivious. Here's the question. What are you impressed by that makes you oblivious to the truth? 
What are the things in your life, and again, we all have them, I have them and you have them, what are the things that impress you so much in the world that make you blind to other things? Is it beauty? Is it your own pride? What are the things that you are impressed by? Who are the characters in life that so impress you that make you utterly blind to the reality that's going on in your own heart? That's exactly what's going on with the king. He is so impressed with himself and his party that he is oblivious to the army that's sitting in his backyard. Verses 18 through 28 are utterly fascinating. Daniel proceeds against Belshazzar in the form of a covenant lawsuit. And if you don't know a lot about that, that's fine. Basically, it just does this. It starts with a historical review. It says, hey, here's what's gone on before. And then it says, and now you're in trouble and here's why. And then it levels judgment at the end. That's a covenant lawsuit. That's exactly what Daniel does. It's really great to see it. First, this covenant lawsuit gives this history. Daniel opens up by reminding Belshazzar that, about Nebuchadnezzar's history. Hey, your father, he, he, he was humbled. Nebuchadnezzar was great because God made him great. He was raised up because God raised him up. He was judge because God made him judge. Eventually, he became full of pride and then he ate grass like an ox. He's reminding him of the history. He was taken from his, from his throne and his glory was removed along with his sanity. He was nuts. And then God restored him, verse 21, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And then we know what happens next. We just read the end of chapter 4. Now Daniel begins the judgments, verse 22. You knew all of this history, he says, and yet you have not humbled yourself. Here's the thing. He's like, you can't say you, you, you didn't know. And here's the thing for us, church. This is the same, the same is true of us. Most of us here have been Christians for a long time. And it would be one thing if we could look at God and say, but I didn't know the truth. But we do. We do know the truth. We know it, but does it change? Does, listen, does the truth of the gospel actually change the way we think? Does it change the way we speak? Does it change the way we think about our lives? What we do, what we don't do. Does the gospel have any bearing whatsoever on our actions? Next judgment, 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, glory stealer. And the vessels of his house have been brought before you. In the height of arrogance, he says, not only have you not listened to, to what God had to say, you profaned what belongs to him alone. One commentator notes, God hates pride because it keeps us from knowing God. The pride of Belshazzar was what was keeping him from knowing the true and living God. That is true of us. Our pride, when we are too full of ourselves, we will not know the true and living God. Verse 24, the judgments roll on. And this 
context, the hand of God comes. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances founding found wanting Perez, Parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It, it sounds funny. But these are common Aramaic words. The issue wasn't one of translation. These words, and all the commentators agree, these words are common and they're all having to do with weights and measures. So the way you would trade in ancient time periods is you would have weights and and balance against the goods that you wanted. And and that's how you would um, buy and sell. That's the way markets worked. The the largest weight was the the first one, mene, then tekel, then parson, which is very small, and a divided weight. And so they knew the words. They just had no clue what they meant. Why are these words coming from this hand on my wall? And here's the thing. All these words have one thing in common. They have to do with glory. You have been weighed. So what did we say glory is about? It's about weight and heaviness and and awe and wonder. And God says to Belshazzar, you have been weighed and you have been found too light. That's what the sum of all these words is, means one thing. Each have, has a different interpretation, but they have, they have one central meaning. Your glory is not enough. King, you are not heavy enough. This is the God of heaven looking at the glory of this king saying, you're, you're tiny, you're little bitty, you're not enough. Many, many Tekel Parson. Your kingdom is taken from you. It's utterly divided. And it gets, it's so funny because God gets, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You think you're huge. And what a, what a great lesson. Listen, every single one of us in this room, we struggle with this. We think we are bigger than we are. We make more of ourselves than we really are. You can't steal glory from God. Two applications and we wrap it up. God will not share His glory with another. He is a jealous God. He's the only one who has the right to be jealous because He is utterly holy. He is not jealous like us. Two, the whole time I, I kept reading this chapter, some a couple of times last week and then this week, um, looking for Christ in the text. And here's one um, way that I think we get to Jesus is if Daniel 5 is saying we don't measure up, the handwriting could be on the wall of all of our lives. Many, many Tekel Parson is for you and for me. You have been weighed. And here's what sin is about. You have been weighed and you have been found lacking. 
You're not enough. You're not enough. You have been weighed and you're not enough. And your kingdom is divided. What you think you have all together is actually, it's not all together. And one day it will be proven to to not be all together. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's He's not a glory stealer. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He's enough. His glory is enough. He's weighty enough. And then it says this, after making purifications for sins, this is what we need. This is what we all need. We need purification because of our sins. We are found lacking. All of us are rebels in lack. He is enough. He is weighty. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's enough. Our glory falls short. Christ's is enough. You read through this text and and we're longing for a king who actually gets it right. Who's not a glory stealer. And then Christ comes along and he is a glory revealer. Belshazzar was weighed by God and his glory fell short. You and I are weighed by God and our glory falls short. Christ was weighed by God and His glory was perfect. He is the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the Father. And and here is the good news. He, He came to save the world from sin. Daniel 5 can be a scary chapter. Kind of. If you keep reading Daniel, it gets scarier. But it can be scary. Because the Medes and the Persians come in. They kill him. Probably all that, that thousands of lords that were at that party, yeah, that they're not going to put up with lords. They all got hacked to pieces as well. It can be scary, but it's not the end of the story. God sent forth his son born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might have life in him. Even in this section of Daniel, we're we're exported, we're pointed ahead to a greater king who's coming. The question I'll leave you with is not from Daniel 5, it's what are you going to do with Jesus? This upward call that we heard read earlier. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for specifically Daniel um, and our time together in it. Would you bless it? Lord, nourish our hearts. Forgive us for being glory stealers. Lord, may we come to you in repentance and faith, acknowledging that we are sinful and that we need you, a Savior. Thank you, Christ, that you fully bear the weight that we cannot. We praise you for your glory, for your weight, your heaviness. Lord, shape us in those realities, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.